0: this week on the back table podcast it has been really good for us to work with cardiac anesthesia and cardiology they really like the echo side they they don't do a ton of right heart echo but our cardiologists now tell their incoming fellow classes that if you come to UCLA you'll do angiovac and anari procedures with right heart echo and use it as a selling point. And in fact, it's been a really good way for us to be engaged with them, for them to be engaged with us. And we've grown that into stuff that has nothing at all to do with the right heart, where complications in the cath lab or you know peripheral arterial stuff, renal stuff, whatever it is, we have a much better relationship because we work together on the ECHO side.
1: Hello everyone. And welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things endovascular. You can find all our previous episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products, developed by physicians for physicians, and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD Protection for all your interventions. See RADPAD.com for more information and contact info at RADPAD.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. This is Sabine Dond as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, interventional radiologist, Dr. John Moriarty, coming to us from UCLA. Welcome, John.
0: Good morning. Good evening, wherever <laughs> we are in time-wise at the moment. It's very good to, uh, to be here with you, Sabine.
1: Yeah, no, awesome. Awesome having you you know i I basically just wanted to for our listeners get a little introduction of of who you are and and how did you get here to to l a and um how the heck did you start getting yourself into right atrial interventions?
0: Yeah, well, thanks very much for that. So it's uh like I said it's a real honor to be with, here with you guys and uh I think you know everything you're doing is terrific i I'm, I'm a fan as well and My little story is that I was born and raised in Dublin, Ireland. I did my my medical school training over there and then did residencies in both medicine and radiology and then came over to L.A. about 2009, so almost 12 years ago. And I suppose the plug that I will give is that I'm a a third generation medical immigrant in that my grandfather came over to to Hopkins in the 30s, my father to the Mayo in in the 60s. And then I, I, uh, both of them went back to Ireland and I came over to, to UCLA obviously in 2009. And so it's gotten a little bit harder for people like me with differences in licensing and with Uh, with immigration changes, but hopefully that sort of tradition of people coming over to to get subspecialty training and then hopefully staying on if they feel that it's uh, the right fit for them and maintaining kind of a a pathway to expertise, which I think has been really good for a lot of new people here in, in the States. So that was me. And when I arrived over, I did my interventional radiology and cardiac intervention fellowships, and then I've been on, on faculty in UCLA for the last decade or so and been really lucky. I think we've got a great group of guys and girls who are all kind of like-minded, who, who want to do good work and push new stuff. And one of the things then that I had an interest in, and it, uh, I think was a fairly fertile area, was were intracardiac interventions and this married in nicely with my interest in clot. And so when people had blood clots, I would be interested wherever they were. And when they were in the right atrium, I had a little bit of expertise in that. And the two just kind of came together then.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a neat story about the, having the cardiac background too. I mean, um, it's, it's really a niche market. I mean, a lot of people don't even know most of the stuff that you can do. (laughs) And so I'm really excited to kind of go into. All those aspects today. So you've been how long have you been at UCLA? Then you said about a decade.
0: So I've been at UCLA now for a a little over a decade.
1: Nice. And then, and when did you start doing right atrial interventions?
0: I can put my finger on exactly when it was. So we have always been lucky that there's been a strong venous thromboembolism kind of service, and in my first year or two. We really kind of focused on building that up. And that was my kind of driver where, whether it was filter related problems or PE or DDT, we wanted to become the, the clot people. And when I was about two years out in practice, a guy came in with a complete cable thrombosis and uh, a clot still in the atrium. We lysed him as was our kind of thing at the time, and it cleared up everything in his cava but left this pretty nasty looking bouncing ball in his right atrium. And at that time, that was kind of all we had except for open surgery. But I had heard of this potential for an endovascular thrombectomy uh, that some guys over in the East Coast had done a few of. No one else really knew too much about it. And so I became the guy who knew about it. And so uh, (laughs) we... I learned about it. We got the device brought in. It was the Angiovac device at the time. It was called Vortex. And I remember really well that we got super lucky because we went in, did the procedure, got a great result with no complications. And then we were off to the races. And it very much could have been different where if we would had, you know, a complication or a not successful procedure, maybe we wouldn't have been as excited to build it from there. But that first case which was 2013, that really set us up to, to drive things forward.
1: Yeah. Doing, doing the first, that's, that's gotta be, I mean, I saw angio cases in, in training and I mean, being, you know, doing the first, just, just doing it off the bat, I, hands up to you, man. That's, that's crazy. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a lot going on for those procedures and to have it to go well. Um, that's a great way to start this program. What's, um, so, so people talk about this word clot in transit. And 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 what is uh, what is clot in transit um, and, and how often do you see it?
0: That's a, it's a really good question. And the short answer is every clot at some point is going to become a clot in transit if you're going to have a PE. So every pee at one point moved from the lungs up, or excuse me, from the legs to the lungs. And so the more imaging we do, the more we see it. What we know is that about 4% of all PEs, if you do an echo at the time of presentation, are going to have a clot within the right atrium. And that the worse your PE, the greater the chance of that. So if you're one of these poor people with a a massive or high-risk PE, and we do an echo at the time of your presentation, you've got a 16% chance of having a a right heart clot. And so it's actually super common. It's one of those things that I think historically, people didn't have a good option because you're not going to do open surgery on everybody and you probably weren't doing echoes on everyone. But now we have a good option and we've got an easy way to diagnose this. And so it's something that's probably going to be on everyone's radar a lot going forward.
1: Yeah. I mean, 16%, that's that's almost one in five people under high risk. I mean, does all your, in, in patients with PE, does everyone get an echo
0: at UCLA? Pretty much. I think that we've gotten a lot better. We've become a sort of protocol based place where once you present with a certain, I would say almost every P, but once you present with a certain type of P, you're going to get a trans thoracic echo. And so that obviously means that the more you scan, the more you see, and we have definitely seen an uptick in the number of right heart clots that we've been picking up.
1: Yeah. I mean, do you have Do you see it on CT often or is it usually just on echo? How many times do you see it on echo more than CT?
0: I think a good amount more, even in retrospect, when we know that there's a giant snake on the echo in the right atrium, you look back in the CT and you kind of say, well, was there something there? Is it mixing of contrast? Is it motion? Who the hell knows? And so I think if you see something in the right atrium on echo, it's going to be huge. And most of the time we just go with the echo
1: yeah I, i'm so surprised i mean you you look back in retrospect and and you don't see it like you, you you try to force yourself to see something on ct and and you can't believe what's hiding there on the echo yeah uh, i agree yeah. completely what you know now we're saying clot is there any other kind of intracardiac material you you end up going after after some situations that are quote-unquote in transit
0: yeah and so this says. This has been an area that we have really grown into. And I think this is something that on the IOR side has been a brand new frontier for us. We, you know, IOR and clot go together very naturally. And we wanted, we set out with a, a dedicated thought process to make ourselves the default clot people. So, you know, if you've got a clot in your arm, a clot in your leg, a clot around your filter, a clot in your heart, whatever, we are the people you call. What we didn't expect, but has been a good, side to that has been that we are now involved in almost all right heart pathology. And what I mean by that are things that are hanging on in the right heart, say clot on a catheter or clot on a pacemaker lead or a vegetation. We're the guys who are involved in a lot of that. And it's been a really good thing for us because I think even from a mentality, the uh, there's been a little bit of hesitation, I think, on IR from to get back into the heart. We've kind of said the heart is you know just a passage to the lungs and it's cardiology territory, but you know what? There, you, you do a bit of reading, you maybe look at a few lectures, you you know make you use all the skills you have for elsewhere, and it's very doable and it's right there. The cardiologists really are spending the majority of their time on the left side. They're doing carnage, they're doing Tabber, they're doing MitroClip. They don't have the focus on this. And if we can step into that, there's a huge amount of business, and I think pretty sexy business stuff that you want to be doing, using good devices and giving real benefit. So uh, it's been an area that we've really grown into.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh uh it's definitely a very, very new area and 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 a life saving area. I mean, there there are patients that you know, we, just, we don't have all the devices you have, and I've sent you some some patients that, um, you know, thankfully are, are alive because of you. So um, it's it's a really, really great field.
0: Well, that's, that's good easy to say. What I will say is that it suits my personal personality. You know, I think that you got to know your DNA, and there are some people who are really detail-orientated and are superb at getting into the tiny little micro vessels that go into the prostate, and they are so good at that. And I can mm-hmm. think of a few of my colleagues uh, who are just terrific at that. And then there are people who are not so much into that. I And I am not so much into that. I find that I what I like about the right heart stuff I do is that it's binary. It's quick. You get in, you get the clot out, and you're either 100% successful or you're not, but you move on to the next thing. And I, I think that as our devices have gotten better, techniques gotten better, your success rates are really high. And it just suits uh, my personality to be able to go in, do the job that I was asked to do, and then move on.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, going back to, you know, the clot in transit uh, topic, as far as, you know, you mentioned 16% of patients, uh, up to 15% with PE can can have it. I mean, when do you decide to go after or do the intervention in the right heart?
0: I think the two questions that we would always ask are, number one, how bad is the PE? If the PE is pretty bad, and it's a small clot, I'll probably go after the small clot because we don't want to tip that patient over into a uh, into a kind of a worse P. If there's a not so bad P, you know, if it's a submassive low risk P, but they have a large clot within the right atrium, then we will go after it. If it's a small clot, uh, you know, a one centimeter little ball that we think may not really be that hemodynamically significant if it were to embolize, then frequently we'll anticoagulate and watch what we know based on the data is that having a right heart clot puts you in a high risk category and as well that the data tells us that there is a mortality shift. In other words, that most of the mortality is in the first 24 hours. So what we want to do is we want to be ready to get in there relatively quickly because if this clot moves frequently, it can be a bad or sentinel event. And so we, we want to be ready to get after these things in the majority.
1: And you mentioned data. I know. I know there's a um, a big registry of, of, of patients uh, with right heart clot. What do you? Can you tell us a little bit about that registry?
0: Sure. Yeah. So there are two of them now. One of them is from Europe, which is the Writer Registry, and this was Italy, Southern Europe. They looked at right heart clot, and that's where we get a lot of the demographic data where I, I can kind of tell you 4% across the board, 16% in high risk, a 62% mortality uh, within the first 24 hours. So I think that that writer registry kind of set the the, the field. Since then, there have been a few low-level things. And then we're lucky here that we ran the the US registry called RAPID, where we looked at the prevalence of some right heart clot as well as other things and then used uh, back in that case to remove them and we ended up getting you know data from 23 sites across the U.S. showing that removal of right heart clot in motion is associated with a really high success and really low complication rate. Wow that's great
1: that's great. that's called the rapid so the rapid and the writer registries for our, for our listeners. Yeah those are great. the two ones. Awesome. I mean, so, I mean, you, we've kind of talked about this, but let's, Um, th- what what are the, some of the devices? You, you've you mentioned Angiovac. What other devices have, have you used to try right heart or even close to the right heart, cable, um, uh, atriocavial clot or, or interventions there?
0: This is where I think it's really important to remember that the vast majority of cable atrial or right heart stuff is within the field of an IOR who's doing usual IO work because the majority of the time you're using lysis catheters, you're using uh, aspiration thrombectomy devices that lots of people now have good experience with. So for cable work, obviously, there's the the whole ream. For right hard work, there are now two endovascular devices, which are FDA approved. There's Angiovac. And then there's just recently in December of 2020, there's the Inari Flowtriever. So those are the two approved ones. But other people have used, or we've used them as well, other devices. So whether it's the penumbra with the lightning to kind of decrease your blood loss so that, you know, when you're in a, in a big chamber, you can remove stuff. Some people have uh, placed baskets to remove adherent thrombi. Some people have used snares to pick off infected uh, vegetations particularly of leads so i think there's all the different things that you would use in other parts of the body you can pretty much use within the right atrium as well
1: great yeah i mean those the the two two of the devices you mentioned i mean angiovac and Inari, i mean those are those are big devices um and i think uh, a lot of people are getting more familiar with large bore access with Anari becoming more um popular in 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 and other uh, venous work, what kind of anesthesia do you have? These, are these patients all under, you know, cardiac anesthesia and, and doing
0: all that? Or, or how are you having these patients set up? So the short answer is no, we aren't doing them all under anesthesia. The long answer is when we started, we had everyone, in, everyone there. It was a cast of thousands in the room, cardiac anesthesia, perfusionists, ourselves, But as we have grown in our experience and confidence, and importantly, as everyone else around us, you know, the cardiac teams, the anesthesia teams, the the intensive care teams, as they've seen that, you know, we can do this safely and we can do it routinely. It's become a routine procedure. And so now the majority of the time, if I'm not doing transesophageal echo, uh, they're not asleep. We do it under regular old sedation with regular old lidocaine local anesthesia. Wow. If we're doing transesophageal echo, then yes, they're asleep because typically the cardiac anesthesiologist or the cardiology team will be, will be running the echo through, uh, through the esophagus from their end. And, you know, one thing I will give a shout out to is that it has been really good for us to work with cardiac anesthesia and cardiology. They really like the echo side they they don't do a ton of right heart echo but our cardiologists now tell their incoming fellow classes that if you come to UCLA you'll do angiovac and anari procedures with right heart echo and use it as a selling point. And in fact, it's been a really good way for us to be engaged with them, for them to be engaged with us. And we've grown that into stuff that has nothing at all to do with the right heart, where complications in the cath lab or, you know, peripheral arterial stuff, renal stuff, whatever it is, we have a much better relationship because we work together on the echo side.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's really pushing the boundary. I mean, that's great collaboration and, and, uh um. You know, I barely have seen that much T E, And so I thought TEE was, was mostly used in all of these procedures. So it's, it's, it's interesting. You can do both. How, how often are you using TEE and not TEE in um, right atrial interventions? So
0: for the right atrium, we're using it a lot. What I'm, sometimes I'm using is ICE, the intracardiac echo, and we're extrapolating some of our experience from TIPS work that ICE has been used now for TIPS guidance. Obviously, it started within the heart. We put it back into the heart. And I think (laughs) guiding, you know, there's always been this little bit of, I don't know what the right word is, but hesitance, I think, on the the IOR side about using echo, but echo is just an ultrasound. And so all the same techniques that you use for ultrasound anywhere else to guide your interventions, to, to look at your kind of intra-procedural results or complications apply within the heart as well. And once you get over that mental barrier of an echo equals an ultrasound, I think we've, we've, we've used it very routinely and with as good success as anyone else.
1: Yeah, you're right. It is it is a mental barrier. You think, oh, you mentioned before too about the heart. You kind of avoid. That's not our territory, but not about territory, but we're our interventions can prove so useful, um, especially on the right side and, and everything that you're doing. Are you using like surgical backup to cardiothoracic surgery? Are, are they involved a lot in these procedures as well?
0: This is where I'd say that all politics is local in our place, not in the slightest. IOR controls it. We do it in our own lab. We have a really good relationship with the perfusionists and with anesthesia. And that's been built up op- over a ton of cases, but I know of other places where people work either with cardiac surgery in the room or cardiac surgery and backup or just a phone call beforehand so that they know that there's a case happening and I think it's whatever you're comfortable with and importantly whatever your institution is comfortable with while I think the complications can be you know very low with this sort of procedure, they're not zero and if I was starting out a new program, I would tell my cardiac surgery colleagues or my cardiology colleagues that, look, there's a case coming up. Would you want to be involved? I think that the, the benefit of doing it before there's an issue is obviously well known to everyone who's listening to this, but it just, it just builds a program rather than it just being one guy going off and doing his thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's a great way to kind of tell, like, I mean, how How would you tell other IRs who are listening who don't necessarily have, you know, they're not at UCLA that have you could teach them to do this by hand. I mean, how, what's, you know, how do other IRs learn this or start about starting a program?
0: Well, I think that the good news is the vast majority have the knowledge and skill set already, because if you're doing lower extremity DVT or PE work, you're using these devices already. And, everything that kind of lies in between there, whether it's, you know, big time cable clot or right hard clot, it's a step forward or a step in one direction, but it's not way off the path that you're already on. And so I think part of it is having confidence in your own abilities and then being inquisitive. I think that, you know, there have been people who've either come to UCLA to see some stuff we've done. And I certainly don't want to say that I'm the only guy doing it. There are other people around the country who are doing it as well, or going to courses, uh, supplied by the vendors going to SIR. We typically will have sessions related to this. And I, I really think that this is an area that is well within the working field for almost any interventionist.
1: Yeah um, th- those are great points. I mean, even, you know, you'll, you'll probably see me in your lab. I want to, I want to learn some of this. So I'm, I'm heading over when, whenever you're back, John.
0: Terrific. <laughs>
1: um, the, you know, what, um, what other kind of, uh, service lines about, you know, we, we talked about this broad veno and and what, you know, um, this is one niche part that you have done a great job. What kind of, does it, does it all fall under, you know, a uh, Venus disease and, and something that someone can, you know, build a service of excellence or a center of excellence or what does that go under?
0: Yeah, I think it does. I think you're right in saying that it's part of Venus. and we, as an IOR community, I think we can really push forward in this. There's so much competition in other areas, in aortic disease and PAD. That it can be tricky, but in Venus, I think we still are the real content experts. And so we know that you know, if a clot comes into the EOR, or if someone develops a PE on the floor, or if you get a phone call from an outside hospital with someone who has a clot around a filter, I order the people to go to. And now what we've done is we've said, look, any blood clot anywhere, we're going to be the people to take that first phone call. And it's been really good for us. It's been an area that is been very good for teaching and for innovation and for practice growth across the, the entire spectrum because these patients who come in, yes, they may not always end up with a thrombectomy, but sometimes they bleed or they ha- end up having a cancer or they, they have some issue that you can then help with. And so I think the idea of a kind of a holistic venous thromboembolism service, when you call it a VTE service or a PERT team or whatever it is, I think it can be an entry point to other stuff as well as being a huge book of business by itself. Yeah, well, great.
1: I mean, that's a lot of lot of uh, wise words and everything. Any other kind of points for our listeners you would give who are just kind of really learning this for the first time?
0: I think starting with the easier stuff is the way to go with any procedure and it certainly is here. I think that having a couple of quick and cheap wins really builds confidence. And the ones that are the easiest procedures are the ones where there is either a bouncing ball within the right atrium, in other words, clot in motion, uh, or you have a clot hanging on the end of a catheter. So for example, a four centimeter clot hanging on the end of a perm cath. Those are the ones that are you're going to do really well with. The ones that I probably wouldn't start with are the vegetations or where there's something in the right heart and maybe it's been there for a couple of months and maybe it's a uh, myxoma or maybe it's a tumor or maybe it's a clot, who knows? Those ones are going to be tricky. So I think if anyone was saying, you know, can I do it? The answer is always yes. And which ones should I start with? I would start with a right heart clot or a thrombus associated with a catheter.
1: Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't start with a, you know, trans PFO thrown back to me. I mean, stuff that you've done,
0: huh? Mm, day two. Day two.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, Jai, it was, it, it's awesome having you. I really appreciate it. You know, I learned a lot. I um, personally don't do a lot of these, but I do, I, I'm inspired and want to, and, and I wanted to kind of increase this practice on my own too. So I appreciate you being here and, and taking the time. We, we really enjoyed you having, having you.
0: Well thanks very much and I really appreciate what you and the rest of the the team there are doing it's a, it's a great resource and it's a it's a terrific drive forward for IOR so thanks again for everything you're doing absolutely absolutely thanks